Welcome back to the Pajama Interviews. Today we have a very special treat for you. The host of today's episode is actually Sarah Ramy, the author of The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. And the person she's interviewing, today's guest, well, that'd be me. A little discomforting in some of my vulnerability and a beautiful laugh and sharing together. I talk about my own experience of chronic illness, the real raw truth of it, and how I came to create the pajama interviews, as well as do the work that I do in the world, supporting intelligent, talented women living with chronic illness to find a way through. So taking a deep breath, I'm going to say, let's dive in. Hello, Michelle, and uh, welcome to your own PJ interview. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah. <laughs> I'm excited to do this. It's um, it's fun to be. I, I'm used to being in the interviewee seat, so it's fun to be the the interviewer and get to know some of your story and just hear more about, you know, how how you got to where you are now and and all the different themes that we. I've already touched on a little bit when we spoke. I'd love to really dig into some of those things in this conversation. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me, Sarah, so that we can have another conversation and share more about the way we can have freedom while living with chronic illness. Yeah. Okay. So first question is, I'd love to hear, you know, what your conditions are. Um, but also what that actually looks like um, in your day-to-day life. Like, what does that actually mean uh, in an ongoing way? Is it constant? Does it come in flares, etc.? So I have two conditions. One is an autoimmune condition where a protein in my blood attacks my liver cells and scars my liver to lead to cirrhosis. So untreated, that's where that goes. Um, and that diagnosis came when I was 35 and it came out of vanity. I had dark circles under my eyes and I went to my, uh, you know, ordinary doctor and I said to her, I've got these dark circles under my eyes and makeup won't cover them. Can you have a look and see what they are? Mm. And that led to an extended sort of year long process of doctors and diagnosis Um, And it's a condition where the liver is inflamed and it's called autoimmune hepatitis and it's not a viral condition. It's where this protein in my own blood is um, scarring my liver and inflaming it. So my immune system is very active and thinks that my liver is an organ donation. Mm. Um, That... Journey. I was very fit at 35. I did dance classes. I um, did personal training. I did yoga every week. I walked fit, healthy, vibrant. And the treatment for that condition uh, at that time was a very heavy dose of steroids and an immunosuppressant at a very high level. And that made me sleep 18 out of 24 hours a day. And I was working and basically might catch the train to the office. And by the time I got to the office, I was exhausted and had to go straight home again and sleep. 
So it wasn't functional. Um, and when I wasn't taking the treatment, all of my energy, vitality and vibrancy came back. Mm. So we can talk a little more about that process. But what happened for me is that I made the decision not to take treatment. Um, and they gave me about five years to organ failure without treatment. Mm. And it was unsustainable for me to live with that level of um, fatigue and total incapacity when I had the option without treatment to feel so well. Right. So that's what I decided. And as the story moved along, new treatment came along and there came a day where I was at the hospital and they said, you take treatment today or you're six months from um, irreversible organ damage. And at that time I trusted the new clinician that I had and I took the treatment. And I immediately was bedbound for about um, five or six months with no energy, no capacity. Um, but the it did start to reverse and heal some of what had happened with the liver and that was my first deep dive into the face-to-face conversation with mortality at that level. Um, which had always been part of the conversation. So I'd faced it intellectually and emotionally along the journey, conceptually, but this was a very real conversation physically. Mm. And I took a long time to recover from that, but I did recover. And now what that means is I take immunosuppressants that have almost no effect on me. They have some weight gain in them. They, If I get a cold, I can be sick for a couple of months, so any sort of virus, I can get very sick. But we have an agreement that my immune system is fantastic. So if you take it off the leash and you take a couple of days off suppressing my immune system, it will kick that cold to the curb. Um, And that's the agreement is to sort of just take it off the leash for a couple of days and then let it run. The second condition I have came in 2016 and... I woke up one morning and went to go to the bathroom and fell to the floor and felt like I was falling and the room was spinning and again I couldn't walk and that was very frightening and after a number of weeks in and out of doctors and diagnosis conversations it turns out that's a condition called migraine associated vertigo and instead of getting the massive headache you get vertigo. Um, And this condition hit me at such a severe level that once again I was bedbound and I couldn't walk at all. Um, And this time I couldn't read and I couldn't write and I couldn't watch TV because everything, I was feeling like 24-7 I was falling and had vertigo, like just constant, the room was spinning for the whole time. Mm -hmm. So that treatment is um, medication that changes the chemistry in your brain to adjust what's happening there. And again, that was very slow. And in my, it's five years now with that condition and I can walk and I'm pretty well. Um, But if the weather is being really hot and it's gonna rain, um, any change in the temperature that changes your vestibular system, that will affect me and I can wake up with vertigo. Um, and that still affects me to the point at times where 
because I'm lying in bed but it feels like I'm on a roller coaster, I will throw up because of the nausea of the sense of being on a roller coaster even though I'm in bed. So those are my two conditions and that's sort of a little bit of highlights of where I've been. Yeah. And in a sort of moment-to-moment, just so I understand, do you, is unless you wake up, with that where you're at now unless you wake up with those problems do you more or less feel yeah normal or what what's that um so I more or less feel normal uh what I have is a lot of um body tension because my body sort of locks up with the condition and Mm. because it's still there it's still underneath the Mm. medication Um, any adjustments throughout the day, so large sounds or strobing lights or whatever, will definitely activate it and my body will lock. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a level of tension that, you know, a massage can help some, but that's basically I live with that sense of lock. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that um, I will still get a migraine headache um, probably once a week, maybe more. And there are things that I'll do where I'm very careful about turning my head and I can just go, oh, no, that's no good. That's If we stay in that position, that's really going to activate it. Um, So there's a lot of vigilance in the body movement. But apart from that, yes, everything's easy. That's right, (laughs) easy. (laughs) Just just a little vertigo now and then. (laughs) Being bed down here and there, no problem. (laughs) Um, and so in addition to the physical, what are, what is the, the emotional, um, weight that comes before we get to some of the, the positive yeah. things, like yeah. what are some of the difficult yeah. things that have come with that in terms of what you have to deal with or carry with or carry with you or process things like that, that were not there, you know, when you were as you described, sort of healthy and well and vibrant. Yeah, so anxiety is is one of the biggest and the first, as almost all of us would know. Um, and the vertigo is very anxiety-provoking because I feel like I'm falling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's frightening and I literally am gripping the sheet or gripping the pillow or holding something to to stop the fall even though I'm not falling Um, so that anxiety in that moment is terror fear um, really frightened Um, and there's different layers of it there's certain layers where if it's just like I wake up and go okay the room's spinning a little but um, that's not anxiety provoking but then as it escalates there's there's a point where it's impossible not to um, be very, very frightened, which is the appropriate response if you feel that you're falling. Mm-hmm. In terms of um, the overall conditions, particularly the liver, there is always a consistent underlying vigilance and fear about watching my monthly blood tests and see, you know, what the indicators are doing. Um, AIH is not curable it is only managed it can have flares and the immunosuppressants can stop working 
um, for reasons they don't know. So I always think autoimmune conditions are code for we've got no fracking idea. Um, that's what that stands for. And they just treat it as if they're treating something else. And it's same for the migraine. They don't know what causes it. They just accidentally discovered one day that this drug helps it. Um, so for me, there's always that sense of the invisibility of the illness um, and, you know, that you look well or you look great uh, conversation. And Can you talk a little bit about that, about particularly... Yeah. That relationship of having an invisible illness and like a chorus of people around you saying, but you don't look sick or you look great or, you know, things like that. I know that for me, that's that's one of the most difficult things. Yeah. um, Since moving into this work, it's obviously I feel seen every day working with women with chronic illness. So that's been and to be in relationship with them and even uh, creating the PT interviews has been such a bright light for the luminosity of the experience that we all seem seem Mm -hmm. through. The biggest um, sector or aspect of my life previously where this affected me was going to work Mm -hmm. and trying to work um, and having the fatigue and pretty much looking well nobody can see vertigo and nobody can see an inflamed liver and they can't see the drugs and they can't see the effect on you of the drugs so while I at work I would um because I would feel slightly off balance I would run my finger along a wall as I was walking past the Mm -hmm. wall at the office just to give my physical sensation of there's a wall there's structure Mm -hmm. but the impact of living with an invisible illness and then working with normal, well people at the office, that is like I just felt my stomach just clench even talking about it. That is hardcore. Like that is just like, uh. um, And there's a lot of performance management in the process, um, both you not wanting everybody to be involved and ask you how you are and still unwell, still got vertigo. Um, And everybody, you know, my feeling is that sense of other, that there's me and then there's everybody else going about their life and their work and their mortgages and their kids and going to the theatre and there's me going home to bed Um, and then restoring energy and then getting up, getting dressed and doing it again. Uh, What I did through this process was really work with myself to have the conversation that I am as valuable, as important, as equipped, as witty. In fact, I'm more grit, more tenacity, so to speak, in myself. Mm -hmm. And I started to change the way that I related to others from that sense of sovereignty and from a deep, deep sense of autonomy. Mm -hmm. and setting some super big boundaries. Mm -hmm. So that experience at work was as complex in many ways, but I started to feel like an act, like an agent, that I had agency in it and that I was taking some control. And the outcome of that is that the illness is more visible through your verbal description of it or saying what you can and can't do. 
and you're in relationship now with other people's emotional system managing their response to that rather than feeling consistently invisible and me trying to manage all of it. Um, there's a relationship with others. So those are some of the places where I felt the invisibility and the only other one is on public transport, that thing where you look so well um, but you feel really faint and you want to sit down um, on crowded trains and trams, uh, mm. which has not been a problem in the last 12 months in Australia because <laughs> you can get as much space as you want. So um, that has been a delight. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I have POTS, which is a different but you also really need to sit down often most of the time and if you're in a crowded situation it's very anxiety provoking because nobody can tell that you need this you don't have a king you don't have some sort of external signifier and that can be really just difficult because it's interesting because it really does over time I think I think this is so much of what you're going to do in your part of what you'll do in your course with with women to really talk about um, how to learn to step into that sovereignty, as you would say, to learn to advocate for yourself and to learn not, not only your own worth, but you're, you're worthy of being seen as you actually yes. are. Yeah. And that this is something I think about a lot because <laughs> I'll be on a Zoom with some old college friends that I'm not really close with anymore. And so they don't we don't talk about my health stuff very much. It's just there to catch up. And there's so little space in that environment. I feel like it's too heavy to bring up my health yep. stuff. But everyone else on the call is complaining and kvetching about their life. Like they don't feel that inhibition yeah. about being seen in their struggles. Yeah, and this is, it's a really interesting, I think difficult. Like it's something that I feel like I've really managed in some areas of my life but sometimes I still it, it's it's a challenge to be like okay so how do I feel more seen in this situation so so I would love to hear about a little bit about what are some of the ways that you have done that work to make yourself visible in a way that feels empowering and better because there's so much, I think, medicine in being seen. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what are some of the ways that you um, were able to bring kind of that that witness into your own life? Yeah. So, some of the things I did in the first round of being bedbound and being so sick, there's and having that conversation with death there's an incredible strip back in your life. Like you can't, there's not a lot of people that you see. The people who come to you um, are helping you physically, like they're getting groceries for you or they're cooking dinners for you or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that was probably one of the most difficult emotional and um, cognitive, like mental, conceptual experiences of my life because I had left home at 17, I had cared for myself. Um, by this time I was 42, so over 20 years. I'd earned my own money. I'd lived alone um, for a very, very long time, so well over a decade by this time. Mm -hmm. 
and I'd managed all of my things on my own. So at that time I was getting migraines or I had been feeling fatigued, but I managed it quietly in myself. So it was so difficult to be in a position where I needed help and I couldn't do it for myself. And it brought up a lot inside me from my family learning um, and the culture of my family, which is you take care of yourself, you don't ask for help, and if you ask for help, you are a burden to other beings. So I felt guilt and shame that I couldn't care for myself. And I just had to learn how to let people help and it was hard, it was emotionally hard and I had to meet all of those thoughts and beliefs from childhood and teens about what I had been taught and in many ways rewire, re-meet them, uh, speak to those younger parts of me and say, actually this is a situation where help is important People are offering their help. It's not a burden to them. Um, And I had to learn some compassion for myself. Mm -hmm. But what that experience did was give me the literal nervous system experience of being seen and being helped in a way that was useful. And I just kept going with it's okay to be seen and be helped Mm -hmm. and that my vulnerability is complex for me but how can I use this vulnerability and how can I learn with it what it's like to be a human being and the fragility of humans so by the time I started to go back to work and I went five hours a week back to work spread over three days (laughs) and most of that was from home so pretty much if I went to the office I was working um somewhat ironically for the Department of Health here in um, Australia. But I would go in for an hour and basically I would go in, I would sit at my desk, somebody might ask me a question about something, I would respond. Um, and there are times where I remember a colleague of mine who was had become an acting boss, so she was there um, for a short period of time, bringing something to me and saying, oh, can you read and analyse this? And me looking at her saying, no, I can't. And um, she's like, what? <laughs> it's like, um, no, you'll see from my doctor's medical condition about returning to work that that task is too complex for me due to brain fog and everything else. But I never went into that with her. But I just practiced saying, no, I can't. Um, and feeling it was an education for the other person about boundaries and it was good for me and I just kept going to my edge, practising, saying no, asking for what I needed and I had a deep sense that other people's discomfort was great for them to learn how to manage their discomfort with me setting a boundary. That's very evolved. <laughs> There's a lot of people, I, myself included, it's been a real journey to, to to really, I think, appreciate that perspective and not feel like setting a boundary is a violence against somebody else. Like that is how it can feel to, to some people like me. In the beginning, you feel like you are harming somebody else by just saying, 
no, no, thank you. This is this doesn't work for me, which is all totally normal behavior in general, but also for a lot of people. They just say no all the time and they set boundaries all the time. But but I think if you're more sensitive, if you're more empathic, if you're a woman, there's a lot, there's a lot of predisposing factors to having maybe not as much experience with boundaries. And it's a real crucial learning curve in terms of coming into your own, especially with uh, a chronic illness that is invisible. You just have to learn those skills and they because otherwise it's just miserable because people just are trampling all over your boundaries constantly and it feels bad um well it's it's not only is it incredibly detrimental to you um it's detrimental to others on the planet is my view Mm -hmm. um and boundaries was something that really chronic illness taught me and I wasn't I was great at putting up walls emotionally in my 20s and sort of pushing back with people and retreating to my solitude. Uh, But with the diagnosis of the liver condition, I was very open because I was felt at the mercy of the doctors and the discussion and the treatments. And the one thing that I felt that I had was I had my academic backgrounds in philosophy. So I had this deep question in myself of what is the good life and I had framed my life and structured my life around that question. So what is the good life for me? And that for me was like I like having time, I like to be able to read, I don't want to work all the time and I'd set up my life, started to structure it around that question and it changed over time. But that question really guided my relationship with the treatment of the illness because it became not only what is the good life but what is the good death Um, and how do I want to die and what what do I want to feel like in that completion of my life. Mm -hmm. So this really guided me between 35 and 40. Mm -hmm. And for the first couple of years of treatment when I was still taking it and changing drugs and that and just incredibly sick, it really led me to that moment where it's like this is not a good life and it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. So when they said, well, without treatment, you know, you'll die within five years, and I was like, great, I've got five years. I've got five years to feel well because mm-hmm. 25 years feeling like this, when I know there's an alternative, I had an alternative. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't pretty at the end of that alternative, but it was pretty for about four years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a list of the things I wanted to do before I died and I couldn't do everything, but I could do some of them. And one was mm-hmm. go live in Paris um, mm-hmm. and the other was to really immerse in mythology and I went, um, actually took a group of people on a philosophy tour to Turkey and we looked at um, Alexander and I was sick like I was still taking some medication then and there were days where I had created this 10-day tour for these business people with a fantastic philosopher guiding them um, and I was the manager of that and there at the end of that time like in about day 8, 9, 10 I was too sick to leave bed and so mm-hmm. they went off on the tour it was 
this beautiful thing that I had created, I had never seen, I wanted to do, and I was laid up in bed super sick. Um, So for me that learning of boundaries was a constant conversation with myself and with others, but every little stretch built and I became more and more comfortable letting other people be uncomfortable rather than me suffering in silence and everybody else seemingly getting what they need, me feeling emotionally crap and filled with anxiety and constantly trying to do things that just weren't physically possible. Yeah, that's so important because I think when you have these illnesses, you feel so alone and you feel like you can't communicate it to other people and it just compounds the emotional weight of the whole thing. Like being sick, is already difficult enough, but not being able to kind of build those bridges out to other people where they can like walk over to you and actually meet you where you are, not being able to do that just makes you feel so cut off and isolated and bad. And so I think really learning those skills is is so important. And I wanted to ask you, because that sounds to me kind of like one of the ways that you've really learned to flourish and that you've really learned to become more than you were before you were sick and I wondered if you could speak to some of the other ways that you've you felt that in your own life yeah pink bow on it because you know how I feel yes there's no pink bow um look boundaries just became critical with doctors they became critical with determining medication they became critical living with side effects for months and months to the point it's like fuck this but no. Um, so I feel like there's sort of a natural evolution where you sort of suffer to a level of point until some part of you kicks in and says this, no, no. Mm-hmm. Nah. Um, and that's a really healthy place to be. Uh, that yeah. to me is the beginning of your healthy engagement with yourself and your body. And mm-hmm. it's totally functional to say no to people. It's mm-hmm critical not just for your well-being but we all know what it's like when you say yes and you actually mean no if you just think of anybody Mm -hmm. you've engaged with working where they've said oh yes I'm happy to do whatever and then you feel their resentment and the passive aggressive and it goes on for you know it never ends um and that cost is very high not just for them but it's uh, it's icky And so I noticed that people, everybody does say no, even if it doesn't come out of their mouth, they say no in ways that are totally dysfunctional and really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I learned to trust my capacity to say no cleanly. Mm -hmm. And what I found in that process is I felt much better. I learned to let other people have their emotional response to it and not try and manage it. And that was a really big thing. Um, because it's their emotional response to what's true for me. And they can say no too. And that's what started to happen is that people started to trust me a lot more and tell me the truth of what they were feeling. Mm -hmm. And I worked out, oh, sure, I'm having this because of chronic illness, but people have a level of anxiety in the culture of status and working Mm -hmm. and feeling like they have to be perfect and get everything done. And they're also in just anxiety trauma. Mm-hmm. And so things became more visible. 
So one of the things that I worked out was what I now call badass boundaries, uh, mm-hmm. one of the great tools of having freedom with chronic illness. They're the first. They really give you some freedom. Both mm-hmm. they clear up a lot of space in your life and your energy can be focused on what you actually want to put it towards. You mm-hmm. have got a limited amount of energy. That's true. Um, but you want to harness that for the things that you want to put it into rather than just the incredible emotional drain and anxiety of worrying about everybody else. The other thing that I did, um, and it came through that long period in bed at home uh, and not being able to cook for myself or do anything, and then slowly being able to like walk to the letterbox holding with somebody holding me like with my arms, like... (laughs) such a common thing where you're just like man just getting the mail is so hard like good god I don't know why that that one thing I think comes up a lot with people who have very severe fatigue issues like there's something about the the journey to the mailbox it's like the first thing that you do when you get out of bed and it's still so hard and you're just like wow People really don't understand like yeah. what I when I mean fatigue. Like I cannot going to the mailbox is like climbing Mount Everest. Yeah, and it feels like such an achievement when you get there, and then you're like, okay, I've, I've got to go back, but I'm going to have a little rest and consolidate my energy. Yeah. Um, so what I did was I looked at all of the things that were on my list of I can't do, and I was driving myself crazy. I was just so upset and depressed and in grief and in loss. And I thought, this is not helping me. Mm. So I wanted, and then everybody's having those conversations with you where they're like, oh, poor you, and oh, I don't know how I'd cope with that. And it's just, it's heavy, it's icky, and it does not feel good, and it's not the way I want to be in relationship with myself. Mm. So what I decided to do was visually and sort of in my own journaling create what I called my circle of wellness. Mm -hmm. And that circle included that I could maybe have a bath, all the things that I could do. So when I could go to the letterbox, the letterbox went into my circle of wellness Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. of I can't go to the market to get food, I can't um, write something because of brain fog, blah, blah, blah. I started Mm -hmm. to focus on my circle of wellness and work out what was in it. And this process gave me the joy of achievement in my circle Um, Mm -hmm. And then every time something was added to my circle of wellness, there was this expansive joy. And then when things relapsed or my circle shrunk, what I was doing was changing the conversation with myself and others that I'm not going to talk to you about illness. I'm talking to you about my wellness Mm -hmm. and what's in my wellness sphere. Mm -hmm. And this is what I can do. And Mm -hmm. that fundamentally changed my relationships because instead of saying no I can't no I can't no I can't and just feeling that weight and that heaviness and that sense of incapacity but also feeling just like I've got nothing to contribute here when Mm -hmm. I started to talk about what I could do you can see in my energy in my face there was this joy and that's what I talk to people about this is what I can do and Mm -hmm. I did not ask myself 
to compare my circle of wellness to everybody else, family, friends, colleagues. Mm -hmm. I looked at the people who were my peers. So when you go to a hospital and you go for treatment, you will have other people in the waiting room beside you. Um, And they are my peers. Mm -hmm. Not the well people. These are my peers. Mm -hmm. This is my community. And when I see the courage, the grit and tenacity of You know, in a liver clinic, you have people with oxygen tents, um, Mm -hmm. oxygen tanks, Mm -hmm. and who are yellow with jaundice. Mm -hmm. And these are my companions, even though I look well. And these women and men of all ages get up and find their way to the hospital for treatment. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? What does that take? And to be out in the world where it is visible what they're dealing with. It's like these are the most courageous, powerful, respect, respect, respect to these people. This is my community and this is what they face and this is what they do with their time. And you can hear it in my voice and in my energy. It's like this is what, this is the ground and this is the ground we stand in. And Mm -hmm. any of this bullshit about illness or, you know, can't you just do this or apologising for being unwell, no, we do not (laughs) apologise for having this amazing fundamental emotional capacity. Yeah. I I want to make a note here because I I don't know who's in your your workshop. There There is a slight distinction when you have a contested illness where if you don't have an illness where people are recognizing that you're going through just like just the most hellish things you there's an extra layer there where you really do need people to express to you kind of like the same like like you expressing to those people that have a visible external signifier that's usually missing if you have a contested And so, and it's so important, like, I feel like that's what's one of the benefits of the program that you're doing is to provide that for people, like this recognition of like, this thing that you are going through is a fucking nightmare. And like, if you skip over that and go to the circle of wellness without that, then it doesn't feel, you're like, I I want to focus on those things, but first I need to acknowledge just like the shit of it because it's not happening to you in the medical world, often not with friends and family. And so, but so it's, it's, it, it, I just, I'm just reflecting on that listening to, I'm like, you're absolutely right about that, but it's, there is this missing piece if you've got one of these illnesses. Yeah. And I think for me, um, you know, just having doctors because it is still all invisible in me so I I get that bit and having doctors not really listen to you about side effects or not really listen to you and keep pushing you down a path and I remember when I kept saying that that drug doesn't work I remember a specialist just sitting across the table looking at me and saying well I think we've reached the limit of modern medicine with you Michelle and that sense of like all right, because I'm not complying, I'm the problem patient because my side effects are too much, your position is like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to have to leave you at the side road, you know, on the on the curb, and we'll just keep going with the patients we can treat. Yeah. And that 
is crap. And I certainly totally agree with you. The circle of wellness was what I found in myself while living in the swamp and the distress and the anxiety. It was the only way I could find a way out emotionally. And it wasn't um, my circle of wellness is the happy rainbow land and this is where I'm going to spend all of my time. It was still like I can't fucking go get food for myself. This sucks. I have to just live with what people buy for me and they don't always buy the right thing and, you know, I can't get my real needs met where I can take care of myself. And all of that, though, I felt that there was this framing of me experiencing illness as um, infantilizing me and as treating me as someone to be incredibly sorry for. Even though they couldn't see their illness, they could see the impact on me when they're up close. And I felt like I was constantly being treated like there was something terrible about me and my experience. It was this horror story. Um, and I just couldn't stand that identity being narrated to me when for me I was like, are you fucking kidding? I'm sitting down having a conversation with this. You are all going to have this. It's like this is coming for you um, and I'm taking the time and I get to be with myself in the truth of who I am and there are things I'm discovering and learning here and it is crap that I can't walk and it is crap that I need you to take me to the hospital to because I can't get there on my own um, but I'm not a victim of some terrible terrible misfortune that has occurred and you are all immune to and yeah. therefore I'm just going to be the one that you all look to and go, well, you know, when you look at what suffering can be, really be like, I'm really good with my problems. Like I hated being the benchmark of other people's mm-hmm. wellness. Mm-hmm. So that's what really drove me to find a new story for myself and a new way of being in relationship with myself. Yeah. It's just, it's so interesting to me because I've always, I've also experienced, like I got an ileostomy, which is like a colostomy bag last year. And this is a visible thing. It's invisible underneath my overalls, but it's finally was an externalization of like a real problem that had already, the the functionality of my colon was already a problem before, but nobody really believed (laughs) that it was such a bad problem. And it was so fascinating to flip from one side of like the pain of having everyone question you constantly like is it that bad like can't you just come out with can't you you look fine to me switching over into having this thing that people are like oh (laughs) that's much more like what you're describing of just like oh I feel terrible for you and that's horrible and bad in my case that was like a balm because I had not experienced that at all. And so I just like soaked it up. But eventually, I started to experience exactly what you're describing. And I think what people who have, it's just two sides of the same illness coin. It's like, when everybody feels bad about it, and it's a and understands that you are sick, and you're in a really bad place, then they pity you, they box you in that all these 
things that yeah. you're describing. But if they're if they don't believe that you have that illness, then you're not getting that, and that's its own kind of yeah. So it's just it's interesting, like that they one doesn't negate the other. It's it's they they kind of live in tandem with each other, and you're kind of in one experience or the other one, and they both have kind of different ways out. And <laughs> like you're this totally. And this the migraine, yeah. the vertigo was is exactly that. You can't see me have vertigo. You can just see me say I need to go home because I've got vertigo mm-hmm. at the office. Um, nobody can see the suffering. Nobody can see the pain. Nobody else is feeling the floor rolling underneath their feet. Um, and that level, I found that really mostly in a working situation. And certainly once I'd recovered a lot with the liver, I would feel fatigued, but nobody could see it. And I would just say I'd had to go home or do something. Mm-hmm. So that is a different problem. And in that, it's like, I really want to be fucking validated. I don't <laughs> wish you had this vertigo, but geez, I wish you had something where you could see this invisibility. Um, and it was even with some of my dearest, closest friends yes. <laughs> um, who just, you know, you can see people get tired of you talking about the illness and the impact on, like, aren't you better, etc. Yeah, they're like, in private, they're like, I kind of, w- I miss when friend A yes. could do all this with exactly. me. And when Sorry. I see her, it's, it's we just have this heavy conversation. Um, and there's part of me, you know, I'm a human being. There's no um, enlightenment claim here. Uh, and a girlfriend of mine, when she fell pregnant, she got a condition which made her very, very sick and bedbound. And then she got it. And I was like, I'm really sorry that pregnancy you're having this experience and there was part of me on the inside going yes yes fucking that's it now yeah. and her whole relationship with me transformed <laughs> and no. she was you know a super good friend for me when I was sick and she did think you know, she was a beautiful beautiful friend she is still no. a very dear friend um and there was this joy in part of me of okay you get it now but also I have something to offer you now in this experience I can help you with this thing that is unimaginable for you I've got something to offer actually this leads to a very important conversation that I know we want to have which is talk to us about the the heroine's journey and about Persephone because I know in my Persephone studies and writing that a huge part of Persephone's story is that she becomes the guide to other people descending into hell for the first time. And um, I know you go into this in your, in your work, in your course, but um, like, that's what that's for me, this was such an important piece of meaning that was like, even if I'm not healed, I, absolutely now have this incredible power to help other people even if it's just yeah. my friend who just now yeah. has hypernia and is sick and, and yeah. is going through all of these things I can actually be empathic with this person I know probably what she needs to hear you know things like yeah. that which I think can bring back a sense of worth in another in a situation where you're really having trouble um 
feeling like what's the point of all of yeah. this? You know. Anyway, but this is a big conversation. So tell yeah. us a little bit about Persephone and how you came to that story and, and kind of what that means to you and how it shows up in your own life. So when I was very sick in 2012, I was looking for a map of my experience psychologically that was an empowering thing. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of mythology. So I read about Neptune and um, the Odyssey and I found this myth in Greek mythology of the queen of the underworld. And in Greek mythology, she's Persephone. And I had some very visceral experiences in this because I was sitting in that conversation with death and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was reading these myths and there was a moment where I just felt this presence of her um, and she was the way in which I was going to have a conversation with death. And Mm -hmm she was the guide because that's what she is in Greek mythology. She's the bridge, she's the guide into death and into the underworld. So she has her own story and I immersed in that and found in it, as you did, Sarah, this fantastic map for the psychological Mm -hmm. journey of illness. So Persephone is a maiden. She's hanging out with the other goddesses in a meadow Um, And the earth opens up and Hades, the god of the underworld, comes up and snatches her and takes her down to the underworld. And we don't know. You may recognize if you are a healthy person walking through the field of daisies and then up through a crack in the earth comes your horrible illness and through no fault of your own sucks you down. And um, we don't know a lot about her descent at that point in time. And I think it's really important when we talk about Greek myths to remember they are written by men. They are in a culture which validated men. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's super important. And you and I know that there's more to this story historically, which we can talk about at another time. But she's taken down to the underworld. And one of the things that happens in that process is she becomes the queen of the underworld and she goes into that space and she becomes sovereign in it. And then there's a process through which the world has gone into grief. Her mother has sent the world into winter. There's a negotiation between the gods and it's agreed that Persephone can come up to the overworld or what I think of as the overworld. Mm-hmm. And there's variations in the myth, but for the point of uh, succinctness she comes up six months of the year and that is spring and summer and she comes back down and she is queen of the underworld and as you read this myth for me what happened is it's like oh hang on a sec this is sovereignty I know how to move in the underworld I know how to move in the grief I know how to move in the despair I know how to move with that sense of not knowing what is going to happen with the uncertainty And it is a different experience of time and space when you are in an underworld journey and chronic illness is that journey. And there is a way that all of that swampy mush, just rubbish in your own psyche and in your own world, all of that experience can move you into your sovereignty in the underworld. And when you come and speak to the external world, you can speak from that power that grit Mm -hmm. 
that vulnerability which knows how to be vulnerable and set a boundary. Like it is an awesome, empowering process if you work with this map. If you want to work with the map that status and working, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day, six days a week and buying amazing luxurious handbags and partying all night, if you want to work with that map, as an empowerment map while you're living with chronic illness, you ain't going to get the match. It's, it's yeah. just going to, that it's gonna comparison. Drive, it's it's going to make you feel like a failure. It's yeah. going to make me feel like, like I talk about this about how the other journey is the hero's journey. And we all kind of relate to that because it's in our faces all the time because of movies and books, et cetera. But you do start to identify with that. And so you feel, you see this a lot in chronic illness narratives that everyone expects you to slay the dragon of illness. And with chronic illness, you can't. It's not going <laughs> to happen. No. So you just feel like you are going to set off on this journey and you're going to go through all of these difficult experiences. But on the at the end of it, you're going to emerge healed miraculously. And that is how you will know that the journey is over. And that is not what happens with Persephone, this is a cyclical story, as you said, exactly. where she comes up to the upper world and then back to the underworld and the upper world and the upper underworld. And that's very common in chronic illness life. And it's empowering that you do learn boundaries along the way. And you're going to have this experience, particularly in the, you know, you can be with chronic illness 20, 30, 40 years of your life. And there will be times where generally you might feel better and there are times where you feel rubbish. But when you hit those rubbish times, they can be extreme. And the only map that made sense to me was the queen of the underworld process. Mm -hmm. So what I did for myself is I was reading this mythology. I took up, it's like, this is my fucking journey. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is the outcomes of this experience. And I know things that an overworld journey doesn't. And I know how to be with despair. And I know how to be with pain as horrific as it is I know how to stay connected with myself and not plunge myself into a whole lot of um, self-mutilation like emotional just slicing myself up emotionally and becoming fodder for everybody else's comparison about how good their life is mm -hmm. I refuse to do that yeah. so when people went through divorce when other people went through um mortgages or redundancy or whatever I had a toolkit but this toolkit for me is so powerful for chronic illness because it is made for this journey and what I did was I've spoken about the boundaries and I've spoken about the circle of wellness and I designed courses for women that run through this myth so they're practical they're not Let's just all talk about the myth and, you know, sit in book club and read about the myth. Um, yeah. That's not helpful. They're like, what do you need in this journey and what do you get with Persephone? And you need some badass boundaries. Here's how they look. Here's how to get them. Here's how we practice them. We use the circle of wellness because that is a useful, empowering process for yourself. Mm -hmm. We look at how to create meaningful work for yourself because an overworld notion of working doesn't map well with living with chronic illness but you can flourish and you can have work that is meaningful for you 
and where you have a contribution to make. So you and I have been sort of talking about the work that I do and let's be really specific for women uh, listening to us. I run a series of courses. There's a six-week course called Finding Freedom with Chronic Illness and that's where we really look at the story that we've um, inherited about illness, all of this sort of medieval narrative that is still running out in the world about illness being something you have to overcome, you have to fix, you have to be fixed. And it being this terrible misfortune is not a great empowering narrative for you with your own psyche. And there are many other narratives you can work with and you can work with what I think of as the power of illness, not in some great gratitude journal, that's what we're going to do in fluffy rainbows, but we're actually going to look at how the grit and the vulnerability, your tenacity, the boundaries, how they are the power that you can live with and they're built through illness. The second thing I run, which is launching in April, is an eight-month program called Queen of the Underworld. And this is a deep dive into the psychological territory and the practicality of how do you want to work? What is your capacity? What are the possibilities? And we go through this process. There's a logical part for your conscious brain. But once you start to have a new narrative of illness, once you start to feel into that sovereignty, you practically work with that sovereignty. You transform your relationships with friends, family and clinicians where you are standing in your power and that changes the way you relate and others relate to you. A lot more possibilities open up for you. Creativity starts to flow. And there are times where you don't have capacity and we have a space and a process for that so that that is not seen by you or narrated by you as wasted time. That is not wasted time. That is time for you to be with yourself, but there are tools to learn about how to be with yourself in that Mm -hmm. space. Mm-hmm. So that's the process and it came to me through these bedbound experiences mm-hmm. and exactly what you're saying, Sarah, about the different types of illnesses, the capacity I had with the liver um, bedbound time was I could read, I could write, I could watch TV. With the migraine-associated vertigo, I couldn't do any of those things and I couldn't chat to people because their movement was disturbing for me. So there were other tools I had to use in that process and a lot of the tools I had from the liver didn't work for that. But Persephone still worked as a map and there are other tools I found and there's the tool of unbelievably kick-ass compassion for yourself, like the boot camp of compassion and what that really means. And this is not compassion so you can give compassion to everybody else. This is like what is it like to be with yourself when you can't do anything, when it's all stripped back? How can you work still with your psyche? And quite frankly, remain fucking sane. Remain as sane as possible. Which is also a cyclical repetitive process. It's not something that you do once or twice or three times, I I assume, in your it, it is a practice that you learn that you are going to have to come back to over and over and over again. But it's so empowering to have a practice like that of self-compassion, of self-forgiveness, because otherwise the world is kind of setting you up to 
sort of have the opposite of that, like, because you're not meeting the benchmarks that are up in the world around you. And so it's really easy to start feeling poorly about yourself because you're just not ticking the boxes that everybody else is, is ticking. And so you really having the, like a real practice of self-love, self-compassion, self-forgiveness, self like cheerleading. I, I just, or yeah. self like there's just so many things that I just feel like are so, uh, if only I could go back to yeah. the beginning when I got sick yeah. and went, went through, I mean, probably a decade of feeling. Exactly. That. And so to have those tools early or wherever you are, but to, have, to get them now, I feel like it's just such a profound gift for people. That's, that's how it has been for me. Yeah, for me, it's like these are the things that I learned and I wish somebody had been there as the guide for me to say, here's how you can work with it before you know, you end up in such despair and hopelessness. Yeah. But you do end up in despair and hopelessness without some of these things attended to and there is nothing in the overworld that is going to give you these tools that are practical for chronic illness because it's just not the experience. This is a lived experience practice. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm running a course at the moment and, you know, I have beautiful women where we meet every Sunday. So in all of the courses, you'll have video content, you'll have the workbook or that practices for that week. And then we meet as community. And this is really what you were talking about, Sarah. When you have women with totally different conditions who recognize the emotional journey and can speak to it, and you can see that in the faces of other women, just like this PJ interviews has made clear, all of these interviews are about women's experience and thematically how to have power through it. When you have that in community, a lot of the stress and anxiety starts to unpack off you because you realise you are totally normal. This is a totally normal response to an incredibly difficult experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want. We want you to feel part of a community where you are seen, where you are seen for the incredible magnificence of who you are and where you are able to stand and speak from that space and reframe and reset every aspect of your life. It is entirely possible. And Sarah, I know this is something that you have worked with and you stand in this sovereignty yourself and Persephone has been a guide for you as well. Yes, and you know something comes up for me when you're talking about this because, like, you you your your ferociousness starts to come out, which is a very important emotion. It's not an emotion I normally labeling it as an emotion, but it is, and it is something that it's so interesting because you know, like, what you're doing is like might by other people be put into the category of like you know wellness and alternative healing and things like that. But in reality, an alternative healing, we, I think we spoke about this in our conversation, can actually, because it's trying to like get into like, well, what emotion of yours is causing you to be sick? Oh, no. What would you do to make all of this tragedy come down on your head over and over and over again, which is incredibly poisonous. I just, I want a ban yeah. on that forever, which isn't to say that emotional work can't be in in your healing journey sure but do not go to looking at how many negative thoughts you are or how you created your illness through your thinking that is an 
absolute genocide on your emotions. Like that is terrible. Yes, and the thing that it that it completely erodes, especially over time, almost down to the foundations, is your sense of sovereignty, is your sense of self and power. It starts to be like, oh wait, I caused this? Like I'm terrible, I'm wrong. I mean, you start to like shrink out of the picture frame and it's horrible. It's so bad. And so I feel like this is literally the opposite of that. And I, I do one last note about this. I notice a lot of people in alternative health which can be really wonderful and good, but especially if that person who's the practitioner has not been sick themselves, they are really, really prone to that type of like, I'm just going to put it back on, on you. And I think that kind of comes from like not wanting them. They don't want to feel like a failure if they can't heal you with their practice or whatever. And so then they just put it back on the patient and that's, We'll put that to the side, but this is just, it's so empowering and it's so important because you really, I don't know anybody who hasn't really lost, had that sense of erosion over time. And so to have something like this that can literally be the opposite of starting to build you back up into a powerful person who is also sick is such a, just a tremendous gift. It's really important. Yeah, I think what I notice is that it's, I want us all to be seen. Like we are a tribe of extraordinary women, truly extraordinary. And what we have inside us and our capacity to be with ourselves is just a luminous light to this world. And Mm -hmm. never more so than at the moment is this truly visible. Like people have suffered with the whole society having a health crisis and yet every woman I know with chronic illness has had something to say and of it's like welcome to my world this is norm Mm -hmm. but we Mm -hmm. still need to find a way for the wealth of capacity that we have to be translated into our wealth like we want to have functional sustainable lives while we are working and living with bodies that are not always normatively functional. But that is no reason for us not to have beautiful, loving support, strong financial foundations and amazing, vulnerable and authentic connection. And that's what all of my work is about. It is about your freedom you can experience enormous freedom while living with chronic illness Mm -hmm. and it's pretty focused and it's not going to take you into some laborious, you know, another level of treatment that you just Mm -hmm. have to live with the side effects. You can change those side effects of your life right now almost Mm -hmm. immediately with small tweaks in your perspective and with small practical skills. That's great. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that sounds really good. Um, I think we're starting to come to the end of our time. I'm, I know I'm coming to the end. Yeah. Of my yeah. um, but this is such a good, I'm so excited for the people to sign up for this program to go through this with you because it, I just know from my personal experience of, of starting to, you know, do a lot of the things that, that you're talking about the quality of your life, the quality of your health may stay exactly the same, but the quality of your life 
really improves, especially that relationship that you have to yourself, which is bar none the most important relationship in your life. And to to get some help kind of reestablishing that 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 bond, I just feel like is incredibly um, powerful. So I'm, I'm looking forward to people signing up. Yeah, and you can flourish. And that's what comes with it. You can flourish. You don't have to stay locked in the corner. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to interview me, Sarah, and give us our space to have this conversation again. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll put in the show notes links to the course that I'm running and all of the other work, as well as links to Sarah's as well, because Sarah and I are going to continue to have these conversations and Sarah's going to be a guest in the Queen of the Underworld program. So we'll speak more about that at another time. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate Sarah. She's such an insightful interviewer. We always have a great time. And I'm thrilled that Sarah is also part of our Queen of the Underworld program as a guest speaker. So here's the news of what's happening. Queen of the Underworld is about to begin and we begin our first live group masterclass in the week, the 25th of October, 2021. If you have any curiosity about this program, about any of Sarah's work, anything else that sparked your interest, just go to the show notes and follow the links. And I look forward to our next pajama interview next week, where I'll be back in the hosting seat. I'll talk with you then. <music>